Thank you so much. Uh, who uh, was who? Who brought some uh, water burger today? Who was that? Was that you, Mark? Are you leaving now? Mark did. Thank you very much for doing that. And uh, Scott, thanks for supplementing us with some bagels as well and all that. So we have more to eat today, which means you need to get up and down more to go get some more and eat it all before we leave. Okay. Um, Thank you so much for being here today. It's great to have you guys. Um, I wanted to just talk with you a little bit. It's been a month now since, let's see, you picked your uh, reading plan. October, to start around October 1 for your Bible reading. You've been doing it for about a month now. Um, so my guess is, if you're like any of the other years, uh, this is about the time where some of you guys can be really discouraged. Uh, because it, you're not able to be as consistent maybe as you thought you would have liked to have been in your Bible reading, in your daily reading. And I just wanted to encourage you as you um, you know, are doing that to, to not view it as a... Uh, don't turn it into something where it becomes legalistic. Uh, and if you get behind, don't feel like you have to do penance. Okay? Especially if you're when you're reading when you're doing a plan like where you're reading through the Bible in a year, you're reading at a minimum of probably around four chapters, three or four chapters a day. All it takes is getting behind a couple of days, and you're going to feel like I don't even I don't even know if I can go forward with this. And I just want to encourage you that that you can go forward, and you need to go forward. And sometimes whatever you drop along the way because you didn't read it, you might need to just leave it lay there. And then just pick right up where your current reading is. Okay. Um, so if you get three or four days behind, and you're thinking, oh, if I, the only way this is going to make sense is if I, is if I get caught up and I read all of that. And and um, uh, if you can do that, and if you have a schedule where that allows you to be able to do that, that's great. But if you don't, and you find yourself now faced with, well, now I don't even really know what the point is. Well, that's not a good place to be. So when you find yourself at that point where you're not even sure you know, you can keep reading at all on a plan like this and you're just going to go back to something else, just pick right up where it left off or wh- where, where it is for that day uh, and just start reading that day's readings. Will you have missed some context? Absolutely. But guess what? The whole point here is, is that you would develop a, a habit for life. And Lord willing, you're going to have months and maybe even years where you're going to be able to keep reading through it and keep reading through it. And if you haven't been reading through your Bible in a year, I want you to imagine yourself developing this year a a habit where that 10 years from now, you will have known that you've read through the Bible at least 10 to 15 times, depending on your reading schedule. Can you imagine being a man who's read the Bible 10 to 15 times? Okay, um, you need to be that. We want you to be that. So don't don't give up on it. Don't don't bail out when it when it gets hard. If it gets hard, just pick up right where you left, where, where your current day's reading is, and then just start it again. Have a new day of starting. Okay, uh, and really you got to talk to yourself carefully. You got to shepherd your heart carefully about why you're doing it. Um, you're doing it to meet with God, and whatever chapter you're in, you can do that. Because he's the God of that word. And uh, so don't give up, okay guys? Any questions on that or anything that you found for yourself personally to be really helpful 
Anything that you want to say that would be encouraging to guys, or does anybody need to bear their soul and we can just lift to say it? I'm reading chronological um, uh-huh. planning. It's like two chapters a day, so it's really enough. You can do that. Yeah, very good. Yeah. And that's helpful because I would find that I would get overwhelmed when I had to do like four chapters. Right. Yeah. How many of you are doing a chronological plan of sorts? Okay, a few of you there. McShane's, how many of you are doing that? How many of you have got a, a different plan of your own that you've got someplace else? You are, you are the rebels, the heretics. <laughs> Just kidding. At least I've got an elder on my side. Yeah. Wait, how? What is that? <laughs> That's good. Well, good. All right. Well, just be an encouragement to each other. When you're talking to each other, ask each other, how's your, how's your reading going? Um, in your small groups and build here, um, help each other out. Coach each other. Um, if somebody's hit a real roadblock, help them get over it or around it. Okay? If you're the one who's hit the roadblock, ask for some help. Okay? I want to make sure that we're coming alongside each other well in that way. Um, well, let's take your notebooks and flip them over. We're going to walk through the disciplines again. We have six of them. Could have more. Could have less. Wellspring, the ladies are, as you know, many uh, some of your wives are in it. They're meeting this month the same Saturdays that we are um, over in the uh, Barnes Hall. They've only taken three disciplines. The first three are our first three um, because we're trying to develop leaders, m- leaders, you know, men leaders for the church. Um, we've got other things that we're focusing on. So um, let's, let's start walking through them. At the very beginning, the very ground level of everything is that you need to be a man who shepherds your heart to God in his word. The word of God is not God. Okay? The Word of God is His tool given to us. It's an exalted tool. It's a great tool. It's a tool that should be feared and cared for and honored and put in a central place. But it is designed by God to be a means to reveal Him. And therefore, um, you need to come to that Word in order to see Him, to meet with Him. Um, if you came to a, a window, because on the other side of a window there was a beautiful scene, and you went to the window and you just examined the glass, it makes no sense. Uh, oh, it's a double pane. Look at that. Oh, there's a chip in it right there. That's not what you come to a window for. You come to a window to look through it, um, to see what's on the other side of it. And you come to God's word to see God. That's how he's revealed himself. And you want to come to the word of God to meet with the God of the word. Um, That right there is everything. You become that kind of man who's hungry for God, who loves God, who wants to honor and worship God, who uh, wants to obey him. Anything that God sets in your life after that can have meaning, and can be valuable. Um, it, it'll have impact. It'll have eternal significance. 
Um, whether it's just all you'll ever be is, is, a, is a guy who serves humbly, just be. Um, as if this is something minimum. Uh, it's not at all. If you just serve humbly in your church and you just take care of your family, that's eternally significant. Eternally significant. Or if God gives to you a platform of ministry that is huge and broad and deep and wide and thousands upon thousands benefit from your ministry. Um, if you must be this kind of man first, a man who's after God with your own heart at the heart level. Then you take that and you first place of impact that you must impact is your home, your household, the place where you live. People who step into your household need to have a sense that there's a man of God who lives here. There's, there's a man who pursues God. God is central in this household, in among these relationships of these people in this household. Um, his word is also central to this home because the word is what helps this man meet with God. There needs to be that kind of a sense about you, um, that you're that way. If you're a son under parents, your parents need to have that sense about you, that you are a man, a young man who's after God. Um, that gives you then a broadened platform, a place of integrity on which to stand. Because then when you step out to Discipline 3, the ministry, when you step into other people's lives um, and they come into contact with you and your household, they're not going to see two different kinds of men uh, all bound up in one. They're going to see one man, a man who's after God in his own heart and he's eager for his family to be um, impacted by that as well. And that's the same thing that he's talking to people outside of his household about. Um, if you don't have Discipline 1 and Discipline 2, but you try to have Discipline 3, a ministry, um, it's just a matter of time. That's a recipe for disaster in a man's life. It's just a matter of time before that man's ministry will crumble <coughs> under him or be seen to be what it truly is, um, which is hollow. There's, there's, not a, there's not a godly man behind it or leading it. Um, so if you are that man and God blesses you richly in, in depth and breadth and you know, sphere of influence, praise God. If he gives you five people the rest of your life to impact, praise God. The impact will be the right kind of impact because you're the right kind of man. Discipline four then um, focuses us on the qualifications uh, in scripture for men within the body of Christ. And those two lists are... The list for deacons and elders. They're found in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1. Uh, the deacons' qualifications are found in, in 1 Timothy 3 only. Um, and we want to point you to those and say, take a look at those character qualifications. Later in the year, as we get to the deacon qualifications, we'll give you a tool that will help you to be uh, try to be prayerful about each, of, each one of the specific qualifications that you can actually pray through them for your life. Um, and like I said, we'll get to those later in the year. But if you'll notice on any of those lists in First uh, Timothy three or in Titus one, all of them um, can be categorized under either discipline one, two, or three. You know, what kind of a man of God is he? Just in character, what's he like in his household, and what's he like with people um, outside of his household and in ministry. And so uh, Discipline 4 just kind of gives you some specific character qualifications that make you think back through, again, Disciplines 1, 2, and 3 in your life and the fruitfulness of those spiritual disciplines in your life. Discipline 5 is the hermeneutic. 
Um, if you handle God's word in a funny way, a way that's not consistent or tr- that's, that's helpful, that's going to impact how you shepherd your heart. What you expose your heart to might not be the truth that God intended in the text. You might be exposing your heart to something that you came up with, or maybe that somebody else came up with, but it's not what God intended in the text. So we need to make sure that we are, this year and build, beginning to understand what, what's the right kind of hermeneutical or interpretive way to approach the text. And so we'll do that towards the end of the year. Um, you might, somebody might argue, well, shouldn't you do that first? And the answer that I think is, yeah, you should, certainly could. Um, but what we've chosen to do is trust that when you're reading God's word, which is what we're just encouraging you to do right now, just to read a lot, um, the word can speak for itself. You, you might come up with some funny ideas on your own. I might come up with some funny ideas on my own. But for the most part, you're going to be okay. And the hard attitude coming to God's word, I think, really needs to be established first. But I, I'll be the humble one. I'll come lower than God's word, and I'll let God's word speak over me and to me and be authoritative over my life. Um, do that first. Establish that kind of a pattern, and then let's give that kind of man a right interpretation system that helps him understand it versus we're going to equip you with some rules of interpretation and whether or not you have the right heart attitude. Guys a lot of times can then start to come to God's word as if they are over it and they're declaring what it is and what it says and they're over it because they've got the right interpretive grid now. And we just really want to, I'd rather err on the other side and say be the right kind of man first, humble yourself under the word of God to meet with God. It needs to be devotional always and then arm that man with a way to interpret and to do, to do exegesis and study and all that stuff. So, um, And the last discipline is you are at Grace Bible Church. You're not at any other church. And Grace Bible Church has a specific vision and purpose. Our biblical vision seeks to grab really all of what the scriptures say from front to end. And, and our biblical vision is a way of trying to summarize the, the message of the Bible. Where it, and the way that we've done it is with like a, a little triad. It's about the glory of God in the cross of Jesus Christ. Uh, for transformation of life by the Holy Spirit. It's Trinitarian. It's like the glory of God the Father. And it's not just the Father exclusively who should be glorified. Obviously, Jesus Christ is glorified in the Spirit as well. But the glory of God the Father. Where did God in all of His glory, where did He reveal His glory most clearly? It wasn't at creation. But it was when His Son emptied Himself out on the cross. He was in the form of God. And he glorified God by emptying himself out and becoming nothing on the cross, by becoming sin on the cross, so that he might bear our, our guilt and our shame and bear away God's wrath in our place. That's where God focused his glory. And so his glory came to a climax in the cross of Jesus Christ. And what is the result of that in Scripture? Sinners are transformed. They're changed by the Holy Spirit as he applies the cross and the gospel to the life of the believer. And so that's a simplistic way of summarizing the message of the Bible, the vision of the Bible. Um, does it leave some things out? Yes. Any statement that you come up that tries to summarize what God's word is about is going to not be able to carry it all. 
that that's the way we try to, to focus on it. And then, because we live at the time in redemptive history that we live, we're not carrying out Israel's marching purpose. We're not carrying out Abraham's marching purpose exactly the way God gave it, although there's a connection with Abraham's promise with us, obviously. Um, we're not even carrying out Adam and Eve's purpose given to them specifically. We've been given a purpose in the church that is centered in the gospel. And so that's why we have a biblical vision. We want to grab all of the Bible and say, what is the vision of the Bible? But then we have specifically, as his people in the church, we have a purpose, but it's a gospel purpose. And the gospel purpose seeks to, through the preaching of the gospel, to, to draw in, to build up, and to send out. And so everything that we do needs to be thinking about, is this drawing sinners in? Is it building sinners up so that sinners can be sent out, or saved sinners can be sent out with the gospel? Everything we do needs to be focusing on one of those things or all three of them at once. Um, so we want to keep that in front of us. In fact, um, I think if you look on your calendar, April 9th next year, is that the right date when we go over the, the gospel or the biblical vision and, and gospel purpose? Is that right? Yes. That Saturday morning, um, we just decided this last week um, that we're going to actually meet with the ladies that morning. Um, and they've got, how many do they have? Yeah, so they outdo us by 10. But we're going to go meet in Barnes Hall that morning, and we're going to all be together, and um, I'm going to teach through the gospel purpose and vision there for both groups that morning, and then we'll finish up the last part of the time together back over here. Um, but just so you know, we'll be doing that together with them. All right, any Say they are the ones who are going to get up a half an hour earlier because they don't start till seven. But yes, they are going to start at six thirty. It was either that or let you guys sleep in a half hour, and I decided against that immediately. <laughs> this is like lunchtime for you guys. That's what I like to hear. All right. Any questions on those disciplines? No. And yes, Tom. Um, but not on the dish, discipline per se, but actually. Sure. Because um, we talked about, now I know that this is not God. Yeah. But I know in John 1 1, it says that in the beginning of the word was with Christ. And then I see a lot of parallels with the word in Christ. And I, I see one in Revelation. So my question is, I always kind of struggle with John on one because the beginning was the word, word with God, the word was God. We know that was Christ. So how? That's a good question. Um, what what the word is is God's communication of Himself. And what God decided to do before Christ came is he decided to... See, even, even the, the word in the Old Testament was looking and waiting for even something greater to come. The communication of God through words scratched on a rock or written on a scroll were waiting for a communication of God to come that would be the par excellence. Um, 
And it just so happens that God intended that that would be his son, that that his communication of himself would actually um, go beyond papyrus, stone, but actually would take on human flesh, and that God would communicate himself through his son to us. Um, That doesn't undo the fact that he also still maintains uh, the written word as well. Um, And... I would still maintain that they're both different. The, the revelation that Jesus Christ is of God is supreme. Um, and that revelation of God, that communication of God is actually God. He's the second member of the Godhead. But this revelation of God never was God, and even after God came in the flesh, is still not God. It is a different kind of revelation that is subordinate to the revelation of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Um, and so at points in, they intersect, um, but this revelation bows to the greater, clearer revelation who is Jesus Christ. And he is called the Word, and the Word comes out of his mouth in Revelation, um, but what we have and what we live under here is, is different than that. And it was never intended by God to be God, but authoritative, but authoritative as a means to the greater end who is Christ. So that's how I would understand that at this point. Anybody want to add anything? or Mark? Just to, going on, John, I want to he was, in the he was in the beginning with God and all things came into being through him. And of course, Genesis and we know that, that God didn't certain that he was creating <laughs> other passages tell us that as well. Good. Jerome? Well, in, in, in we look at eternity, we will not need this word because we will have the word of God. We will have him. Okay. So, so that's how I look at it. In, in future, we, we will have what we really long for. Yeah. And this is what brings us to him, his word, but it's not him. Yeah. That's good. Very good. All right, well, let's pray. And then we will jump into our moving to discipline number two. Okay? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving it to us. Lord, um, you certainly are revealed through creation, even though it is suffering under the the curse that we brought to it as humans, it still speaks of you, but its vocabulary is limited. What it can say about you it can tell us there is a God, it can tell us that he is all-powerful, he is the creator, but it can't tell us that the creator became flesh and suffered and died. No mountain, no ocean, no tree, no molecule, no atom, no galaxy tells us that. But it is your special revelation, your Bible, that reveals that to us, in particular the gospel. So God, we are grateful.
that you are a God who believes in words being helpful for humans and that you spoke through many different men and authors over thousands of years to bring about your written word. Thank you for protecting this book in ways that no other collection of writings has ever been protected or would be protected. Thank you for the enduring presence and effect that this Bible has in human history. But Lord, selfishly speaking, thank you for its enduring effect in our own lives personally. Thank you for its power. Thank you that it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Thank you for um, uniting your Spirit's work with your Word and for uniting faith in your Word all in our lives, God. Thank you. We pray now that as we come to your Word that we would sit under your Word, that it would be above us, that we would even think of that mental picture, uh, that we would humble ourselves and take the lower spot and that word, like we talked about last time, we would not see this as a, um, a light beach ball to bat around, but that we would see this as your sword, that's sharper than any other sword possible and will reveal to us the motives and intentions of our own hearts. Thank you, God, for giving us this tool that lets us see into our own hearts, and that's what we want to do this morning. But God, we also want to see your heart for the household in scripture. So God help us to make this study be about you and what you think and what you love about the household. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. As usual guys, just get up and make yourself comfortable and whatever you need whenever you want, okay? Let's take out your um, your uh, worksheet there. We're going to be looking at a ton of passages and so we need to start back in Exodus 20. So you can get your Bible open and start turning that way. Now what I'm going to give you this morning is, um, if you look on the front and back of your sheet, I'm going to give you basically nine different categories for you to consider. And the point of looking at these nine different categories, these were just categories that I came up with as I was surveying Scripture and looking at the household and the way God thinks about the family. And I want you to, maybe what these are is are just nine different vantage points to go stand as we look at God's heart for the family. So one gets down low in a valley and looks up and one gets up on a high tower and looks down on God's heart and the one that looks from the other side and from the other side. We're just going to try to take nine different vantage points and, and see what we can determine about God's heart for the household in Scripture. Um, and as... Usual when we are able to, depending on how we how many verses we look at, like in section number one here on the relationship between discipline one and discipline two, the relationship between the heart and the household relationships, we're going to start in the Old Testament and we're going to march forward through the Bible. We're not going to go backwards. Look, it's not sin to notice a New Testament verse first before you think of an Old Testament one, but I want to... This is all training, whether you know it or not. This is training that we're going to look at our Bible and we're going to let it unfold itself progressively. Why? Because that's the way God wrote it. And so we're even going to watch that and watch what God does as he unfolds it progressively. So, 
Let's take the first category to consider and see what this tells us about God's heart for household relationships. Let's talk about the relationship now between the heart and the household. There, there is a connection in God's mind between you and His Word being on your heart and your house. On a man's heart and, and His Word and the man's house. It's been this way from the beginning. Let's look at Exodus 20. You know this, this is the, these are the Ten Commandments. If you look at verse 12, number, commandment number 5 is, Honor your father and your mother so that your days may be prolonged in the land. Uh, I emphasize that for a reason here, which the Lord your God gives you. So God has specific ideas in his mind about a household. Mothers and fathers and, and children have to have a special kind of relationship. If you drop down even to verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. God has very specific things in mind about a husband and wife relationship. Um, look at even verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, stuff he has, his wife, uh, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, his car, his whatever, he's in his garage. You don't covet those things. Um, so God has something very specific in mind um, when it comes to basic foundational relationships of life. Um, it helps when, and we saw this last week um, with uh, Ephesians chapter 6, it helps guys when we are honorable men. Children are supposed to honor us. It helps when we are honorable and we live an honorable life. Uh, you should not commit adultery. It helps guys, our wives, when we are pure men. When we are holy men, when we are faithful men, when, when we are men of our promise, that we, we said, I will be yours and you will be mine until I die or you die. And we, we need to be men of our word. And we need to be men who are marked by contentment. We don't covet what's outside of our household. What we have in our household is, is from God and it's good. And we're thankful and we're content. Um, those kinds of things. Um, so there's a connection. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 4. And I need to be careful in the way that I speak. As I, I'm just even thinking about the way that I just did that. Um, as a, as a way, let me just walk back and say it this way. It helps when men are honorable. We should be honorable because, for us, because Ephesians makes that very clear to us. And we should be faithful men because Jesus has made it very clear that we are not to commit adultery. And we should be uh, men who are content because coveting is called idolatry in the New Testament. I need to be careful to not apply directly from Mosaic Law to you or to me. And um, not because we only apply from half of the Bible but because we're careful about how we apply from the Bible. Um, and I, I, I probably just wasn't very clear what I just did. I made it a big assumption and, and, and drew out principles of application uh, without walking you through to the rest of it. So I, I, I need to be careful even how I do that and want you guys to be careful in that too. It's not that Mosaic Law does not have meaning for us. It has great meaning for us. It reveals much about the law giver to us. Uh, but those were a, a specific set of collection of laws that were given to a specific people who were to live in a specific land. And that's not me, and that's not you. That doesn't mean we don't pay attention to them. But it means we walk forward, through, or for you, forward through our Bibles. 
okay, and see their connection with the New Testament. And if I just upheaved your world by saying that, we'll talk afterwards and uh, have more on this. And, and you'll see that even later as uh, as we do the talk through hermeneutics and stuff. Okay, Deuteronomy four nine and ten. Watch this. Only give heed to yourself, verse 9, and keep your soul diligently. Does that sound familiar? That's discipline one. So that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen, and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life. Very concerned about um, the heart of the man here. But make them known to your sons. So what are we trying to do here in this first section? We're trying to show the connection in God's word that when God focuses a man on his heart it is to have an impact next where? on his sons on his household where he lives um, Deuteronomy 6 this is very familiar in fact next time together we're going to do just an exposition from Deuteronomy 6 uh, this is the Shema the great um, Shema of Israel hear O Israel the Lord is our God the Lord is one you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. There's discipline one in verses five and six. Now, connection, verse seven. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be frontals. Um, as frontals on your forehead, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So um, you see a connection here that God was making for Israel between their hearts, his word, and their households. Okay, God makes that connection. Go to chapter 7 of Deuteronomy, verses 1 to 5. They are um, warned here, Israel is, to be very careful about the kinds of households they form. Look at verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You're not going to make a household with these people. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. Why? Because this kind of a household made will impact your heart. Verse 4, they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. But this you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and hew down their asherim and burn their graven images with fire. So you are not to form a kind of household. This tells you the relationship backwards in a negative way, the relationship that a household can have on your heart. The wrong kind of a household form can lead a man's heart astray, is what he's telling his people, Israel. Um, so there's a connection in God's mind between the household and the heart. Um, let's go to Psalm 78. Psalm 78, verses 1 to 8. 
So now we're moving forward. This is a masculine of Asaph. Israel has come into the land. Those commandments given through Moses in Exodus and in Deuteronomy are, have been working themselves out or maybe not working themselves out in the promised land among Israel. And here is what an Israelite says years, generations later. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known. Our fathers have told us. And we, so he he looks back and he says, we got these things because our fathers in the past told us these things. And now he looks forward. um, And we will not conceal them from their children. But tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. So he sees himself still with an obligation to pass this on to others. And here it is. Verse 5. For he established a testimony in Jacob. And he appointed a law in Israel. Words from God. Right? Which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children. So he's confirming that yes, God has made this connection. That the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children. That they should put their confidence in God. And not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. You see the connection. They need to see the kind of God that he is. He's a God to put your confidence in. He's, he's a God who does great works. And don't forget them. They're to direct the next generation to God. And keep his commandments. Verse 8. And that they should not be like their fathers. A stubborn and rebellious generation. Watch this guys. A generation that did not prepare its heart. And whose spirit was not faithful to God. They didn't shepherd their hearts well. Okay. So God is making a connection. Very much so. Um, among his people Israel, that there is a, a, a connection between the kind of man you are with his word and your heart and the household. There's a connection. Let's go to the end of the Old Testament. Let's go to Malachi, the last prophet right before uh, Matthew. The very last chapter of our Old Testament, Malachi 4. The Old Testament um, prophecy and prediction of um, Elijah to come, who we know because Jesus said so, was actually who? John the Baptist. Malachi 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and, the, and all the arrogance and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing. It's a pretty devastating day that is coming. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before 
the coming of that great and terrible day of the Lord. And watch this. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. God's way of preparing people for his coming judgment, it included strengthening household relationships. When Messiah was going to come and do what Messiah was going to do, it was important in God's mind that households need to be restored. Fathers' hearts need to be turned back to their kids because evidently they they won't be for their children. And children need to have their hearts focused on their their fathers. The household relationship matters. This shows the importance in, in God's heart for the household. Do you see that, what we're getting a glimpse of? Now let's go to the passage we looked at last Sunday, Ephesians chapter 6. Do you remember the emphasis I made in um, Exodus 20 when I read it? Made the emphasis on the land, right, for the children. Now watch this in Ephesians 6. Watch what Paul does under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is guiding him, right, as he writes this. We all believe that, we know that. Okay, children. Ephesians 6, verse 1. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. And then Paul adds this um, commentary. That's the first commandment with a promise. So that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the land. But that's not what Exodus 20 says. Paul is not interpreting for us Exodus 20. Paul is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and what was true in God's heart for a people in the Old Testament who were tied to a land, it is God's heart also that the same principle be true for a people who are not tied to a land. His law for this people in the Old Testament, get this, here's a key word to understand Mosaic law, was stationary. It was tied to a land. All of those laws were. They were tied to a people who were given that land. It was a stationary law. If you were going to be a Gentile who lived out in the earth, but you were going to come to God, the God of Israel, you had, if you wanted to really be under his regulations, you had to come to the land. Because that's where his temple was. That's where the sacrifices were. That's where... All it, uh, what you were supposed to do with a certain kind of vegetation that grew on your on your on your property, and you were supposed to harvest it this way for people who ha- would have something something would be left for them when they came onto your land. It was tied to the land. It was a stationary law given to a stationary people, and the nations were supposed to come to the stationary people with a stationary law. That's called um, what's the okay? I'm gonna get the two words. That's centripetal. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not very smart. That's centripetal. Everything from the outside swirls in to a stationary spot. That was God's way of working out his redemptive plan on earth. Centripetal. It comes and swirls inward. So everything from the nations was to come here to Israel at the land. Well now, what we're finding under Paul, the apostle, is that there are laws for the church. They're the laws of Christ. 
And God's redemptive purposes is not stationary anymore. Get this. The laws have to be missionary. They have to be able to go everywhere. It doesn't matter where you live. The law needs to be able to fit wherever you go. This is why Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is not telling us how to interpret Exodus 20. He's, under the inspiration of the Spirit, giving us a law that fits us where we are. The, the promise is not that you will do well in the land. The promise is that you will live long on the earth, no matter where you are. He's in Ephesus. He's writing to Ephesus. They're not in the land. Josh, got a question? The ESV Say what? The they translated as land uh-huh. in yeah. Ephesians. It says, uh, "Honor your father and mother, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long." With a very humble heart, take your pen and mark it out and write "earth" in on the side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because that—that's it's—it's the—it's the word "gase" in um, in Greek, and it's earth. It's not land. I'm sorry. Thank you for telling me, because you're like wondering if you're using ESV, you're sitting there going, "What?" Holman man. What's it say? Oh, they blew it. Holman Christian Standard. So did they make an interpretive decision? Yes. And if there, if there's in a in a set, in a in a group of inter, uh, Bible translators, if they are influenced theologically by something that says, you know, there's there's some type of continuity with Mosaic law into the New Testament, then they make interpretive their interpretive decisions are influenced by that. Um, and that's why you have to look very careful, carefully at the original language and and let it say what it says. It doesn't make any sense. Listen, guys, let me, let me give you this example. I thought about this last week. This is a rabbit trail that we are on. And I like rabbit trails once in a while. So I thought about this. When Israel was deported, when Israel was kicked off of the land and they were all of the curses that God spelled out through the law came upon them, and Israel went into Assyria, uh, was deported, and Judah went into Babylon. They were not able to keep the law in all of its entirety. They couldn't because they weren't in the land. That law only works when Israel is in the land because sacrifices are tied to the temple that are in the land. And so... That's already God kind of breaking, showing that this is this is breakable. It, it's supposed to last for when the people are obedient, Israel, to God in the land. But there's a day coming when he's going to shift his plan, and it's not going to be centripetal, but it's going to be in the church, what? Centrifugal. It goes out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the remote parts of the earth. Okay? Does that, does that make sense? We can talk more about that afterwards. But we're, we're finding, we've gone to the new covenant, we've gone to Jesus Christ, and we're finding that the heart of God is still the same. There's, there's commonality, there's con- continuity between Old Testament to New Testament in regards to the household. 1 Timothy chapter 3, this is confirmed. Turn there with me. We'll finish this first section out. God's design in the church is to have men leading who get this. 
that God's heart is for the household. And so the men who are leading the church need to understand this, and it's even a part of their of the qualifications. Drop down to, um, uh, let's look at verse 2. An overseer then, 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, must be above reproach the husband of one wife. Verse 4, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Look, it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. What's the lesser? Your nuclear household, your nuclear family is the lesser. What is the greater? God's household. Okay? That's important to remember. Um, It's not the other way around. And the church is the one who says, pay attention to your households, men, because there's this big household that needs to have integrity. And if there's not integrity in the smaller one, there won't be integrity in the bigger one. Alex? So I understand this is Yeah, no. Um, will it make an impact? Just a servant, and this is this is elders. Deacons comes over in verse eight, um, but it's the same thing. They have the same um, qualification. Um, just Joe Blow, Christian, serving in the church. Um, yeah, if he's not managing his own household, there's going to be a problem. That's where Ephesians like six one to four, and where we're going to see this tomorrow for fathers uh, to not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, that's for all men. And it just so happens that if all men have that, there needs to be the, the men who lead all of the men, they need to not be doing it and the rest don't have to. They need to be the examples for all the rest who are doing it. That's the relationship between the qualifications for elders and deacons and all the rest of the guys. It's not that elders have a one or deacons have one level of moral qualification for them and the rest don't. All of these qualifications for any one of them we're all called to be above reproach. Philippians 2. We are children who are supposed to live above reproach in a perverted generation. Right? So all of us are supposed to be above reproach. It's just that elders and deacons are to be people to be in who are the examples of what it means to be above reproach for the rest who are trying to be above reproach. Does this make sense? And the same would be true in the household. Oh. I understood Alex's question different. Is that what you asked? Were we talking about just serving anywhere? Well, I guess just, just serving anywhere in general. Yeah. Tom, so answer his question. You guys. Just serving anywhere. You want me to grab that one? Please. I, I would say if uh, God's design for us was to serve, we are called to serve. Uh, will it affect if things are out of control in your house? Will affect how you serve? Yes. But I would say this to, to the man that is striving in his household, in uh, leaning in that direction and, and seeking for change in his household, yes, there's areas of service. It may not, it wouldn't be as an elder, well, I wouldn't be as a deacon, but it would be stacking chairs. Uh, but it comes back down to what's, what's the man's heart towards what's going on around his life. Is he striving to uh, 
to be this man. So yeah, yeah. That, thanks, Tom, for clarifying that. Yeah, you you should serve. Um, there will be times in your life where things will seem more out of whack in your home than at other times, but Lord willing, you're to be the kind of man who's um, close enough to your household to understand it, to be addressing it, seeking counsel for how to do that, striving, and you serve in capacities in the church that God does wants men to serve. And that's it, doesn't, it doesn't exclude you from... No, but, but a man... But I'll tell you this, that if there's a man in the body and he is his house is a train wreck and he doesn't have a desire to approach it and he is serving in some capacity, there might be a request <laughs> made of him to step back. It, but it depends on really the heart of the man. What's what's he, where's he at? What's he trying to do? Michael. Scott, I um, actually brought up this question this week with Henri. Um, what does that look like when you're in a singular situation? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I would say you it's, have no household, it's just you. Yeah, um, I would say you still have a household. You don't have as many. If you're by yourself, and we're going to talk about this in relation to the homework too, for some of you guys who are on your own. Um, I would say if you have roommates, that you still need. One of the first places that, as an elder, that I would look at a young man if he's living with other men in a household situation. Um, is how he treats them and how they perceive his leadership in that household situation. Um, I don't do that because, specifically because the, the Bible is as clear on that as it is for a husband or a, a father with his children, but principally I do that. Do you understand? It's a principle that I think you still need to be able to have some type of life of integrity that's above approach with the people that you live with in your house um, and do that. What if you don't have anybody living with you? Um, I, I know some guys, there was a guy last year in Build who, um, and he still lives by himself. His, and I think I've told you this already, he, his desire is to have people in his house all the time. And so he invites people into his house. He, he loves to cook. And so he has people over all the time. And um, he also happens to have a lot of evangelistic Bible studies in his house all the time. Um, he, he recognizes he lives alone. He likes to live alone at this point. And um, so he opens his house up to people to come in. Um, and I would say you would watch for that in a guy. What's it like for the people who come in? Do they, do they leave better Christians than when they first got there? That's something to watch for, even when you're single. Jerome. Uh, you can also kind of watch for all this because he's a single man. Very good. Yeah, you're not precluded from having an impact on others. So I think it's true for any man, whether he's married, whether he's single, living with other guys, or whether he's living alone, because God calls that man to personal holiness. Mm-hmm. And all of his behaviors, all of his habits, all of his entertainment, and all of his uses of his time, his resources, and his freedoms. And so it's a really good thing for any man, whether he's married, single living with other guys, or single living with himself, to ask himself on a regular basis. Yeah. That's not like all of a sudden, um, once you, once a single guy gets married and a girl comes into the house, oh, now there's a new standard of living I have to live by because the Bible actually says, maybe some things more specifically about households, no, that man needs to be, uh, he's inviting 
another soul into his household. And the way he's living, that person's going to be impacted by the way he's been living. So single guys, strive now to live the way that you should want to live when that you should live when when a woman is going to come in and then children are going to come and then uh, don't get caught down the road late and go oh okay that's where most of us are anyway so but and we're, we're repenting of that but we're um, work on that now guys if, if any of these guys here are sitting who, who maybe feel like they're getting this late in life what would they say what guys what would you say to these young single men if you could come back and sit in their single shoes what would you say to them Huh. <laughs> what would you say? You know, I think hearing hear guys talk about, about single and not just single with other guys, but single by yourself. This sounds, sounds like I'm trying to make a joke, but you know it would be surprising. You, you've got, it's so easy right now for me to have somebody uh, to practice this on. I can't imagine being a single guy again. Question: who do, I, who do I do this with? Because sometimes you think a marriage is hard, and bothering, being a father is hard, and it is. Um, but I've got all of this structure put in place around me by God, so yeah. um, all those guys that tell you, oh, you've been married, oh, you've done so hard. It is, but. Uh, yeah. There are some things, single guys, you can't prepare for. There's some ways in which you can't. Just like a soldier who's in basic training and is going, getting prepared and prepared and prepared for battle. There's some things you're never going to get and won't be even be able to do until you're actually in battle and you do it. I'm not trying to compare marriage with battle. Uh, Nick, you have your hand up. Well, I just... Uh, what would you say to young guys? Was that what you were going to do? Well, you Whatever. were saying it here. It's a to put mentors around me. You do find men that can lead you and mentor you and counsel you and love you in the word of God. You know, it's just, Dave has shown me so much that, but it's Christ and Christ alone. And if you don't have a relationship with a man leading you in that way, then you're going to be stumbling. Yeah. And you won't be prepared for that marriage or whatever else comes. Yeah. Nick. Oh, I'm sorry. Your son is Nick. I don't know why I did that. You look just like him. You're so young. difficulties you face, you're you're standing on the right ground to be able to do it. That's right. Tom. Scott, I think this is true for, for everybody that still has a pulse, but 
you were talking about single guys, especially those at the top of the line. I think one foolish mistake that Christians make is that we're little compartments. Uh, you, you cannot be in your home alone and be entertaining pornography or poor entertainment or any type of sin and be in just one little compartment. It's the aroma that you put off. So if people come into your house, even if you live by yourself, there's an aroma that the presence of God is there. And I think one mistake that a lot of people make in the book talking about young people living alone is that you can have some sort of sin hidden away that isn't going to affect other areas of your life. And it's just a lie. Yeah. Yes. Sin does not stay self-contained. Scripture does not portray it that way. It only presents it as that which grows and impacts and leads into every other thing in your life. Um, and you're going to invite somebody else into that life when you get married. So you need to be thoughtful about how you're conducting yourself in your single I, I think that the battle of being a single guy is multiple bigger than what I was. I wouldn't want to be a single guy. Because for my personal life, you know, you know what? I felt like I needed to watching that. And I've got a wife talking to her husband. And man, I tell you what, I've got to walk pretty tall in front of them. And you know what? What are you doing to one? Look at That's right. That's who you really are. That's true. And it's not true. That's good. Let's take a look at an Old Testament man who grasped God's heart for the family. Number two. Go to Joshua 24. Joshua 24. This is a great example of, a, of an Old Testament saint who got this about his heart and his family, the connection between the two. Joshua 24. Uh, the main verses for you to look at, it, we're not going to look at all of them for you, but would be verses 14 to 28. But I want you to look at um, Joshua 24, verse 1 to start with, just so you understand the, the setting here. Um, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem. And he called for the elders of Israel and for their heads and their judges and their officers, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor. And watch this, they served other gods. It was the only kind of man that God could pick to give a promise to. It was a man who was serving other gods. There was not a faithful man out there. Okay? They were serving other gods. This is what humanity had become prior to Genesis 12. And God picked one out, a father who had become the father of Israel, and he was serving other gods. And I took your father from beyond the river and led him um, through all of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave them Isaac, etc. Jacob, Esau. Um, yeah. And, and so, but what, my, here's the point. If you, he gathered them together where? Where does it say in verse 1? Shechem. Do you know what's significant about that? When Jacob came back, after being living with Laban and being taken advantage of, and he came back, and he came back with his wife, and all, I mean, he came back this huge company. He left one man, and he came back this huge company. He came back to Shechem, and you know what he said to his family? Shechem has a place of... That matter. It's a place that you and I read and we just skip right over it. But for Israel, oh, I know what Shechem is. There's an oak tree in Shechem. And what Jacob had his family do, he said, get all the household idols. 
Get them out. Bury them here under this oak. Before we go any further, we're burying our idols and we're not going to be falling after idols anymore. So even after the promise, the children of Abraham are idolaters. And so Joshua says, Hey, Israel, we're in the land. Let's have a meeting together. And guess where I want us to go? Shechem. Now, verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. And watch this. Put away the gods which your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. What's he saying? We were in Egypt. And what were we doing? We were serving up other gods. We had a really hard time as a people getting rid of Abraham's old gods. Serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourself today whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your, which your father served, which are beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now here's the interesting thing as you follow the dialogue from verse 16 down to the end. Read it on your own and find out if they ever answer him or speak specifically in response to his put away the foreign gods thing. What you're going to find they do, unfortunately, is they say, oh, God forbid that we would forsake the Lord and serve other gods. No, we will. We will follow the Lord. And he just keeps saying, no, you won't. You haven't been. You can't. And they never specifically say, we will get rid of our foreign gods. They never say that. They, they, they have assimilated other idols with the true God, and they're saying, oh no, we'll serve the true God. I'm not going to give these other things up, but we'll serve the true God. We're going to keep these over here. That's a great example of an Old Testament saint who understood that his family needed to exclusively follow the Lord. Rick. Can you... Uh well, um, hang on one sec. I want to just confirm. Ephesians five. This you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Idolatry um, is tied to a kind of man. A certain kind of man is an idolater and it's a man who covets. And so the way that I would answer that for today is whatever a man covets, that's idolatry. Um, the New Testament also links greed with idolatry. Um, and we obviously get the connection between covet, uh, coveting and greed. Um, greed is idolatry. Um, so, you know, we can, we can think of things and activities that are idols. Wealth, prosperity, comfort, American way of life. These things are all, could be idols. But, um, the thing to get underneath even that because you can get rid of you can take away from a man all of his riches you can take him away from a man all of his comfort but if he is still a coveter 
And if you're still a greedy man, you still have an idol factory that's making idols. And so you need to attack the kind of character, you need to get rid of a, of a, of a, of a, of a character flaw called covetousness or greed. Those are just two kind of connected areas in which I would say that spring off and represent themselves in a variety of different ways in a man's life. So is God is it possible that we could ever really our eyes? Uh, before heaven? Or before Jesus comes back? No. But the Christian life is about closing the gap between what God has made us positionally in Christ. We there are no we, we are one God people in Christ, positionally. When he looks upon us, that's what he accepts us as, because we have been declared such by him to be righteous people in Christ. There are no other gods when he looks at us in that positional status. In the practical way we are living, we find being exhorted to live righteously. And so the Christian life becomes the fight from to the day we die to close the gap on our practice matching our position and we will never do that. And so as a believer, I really should look forward to that. Absolutely. That's Paul. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Mark. The the, the question seems pretty pretty similar to the question that uh, I'd say we probably actually just see me ask myself all the time and it really comes down to over here is purity and over here is rank covetousness or lust or whatever the sin is. And we're asking ourselves, where does it become too bad? You know, where, where does, man, I really like Tom's truck. <laughs> you know, where, where is it? And we ask ourselves the questions a lot. Where? And, and that's the wrong question. Um, as long as we have that sense of negotiation with the Lord. So I'll, I'll give you a truck for, you know, I'll trade you this for the I, I won't covet that kind of truck, but I'd like this kind of truck. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to Tom's truck. Yeah, maybe not. I'll do it. I'm going to have to move 50. Tom, this is coming back to you an awful lot. It's a truck that's going. I really wish I had. It's all so good. don't we negotiate with the Lord like that? And, well, okay, I don't look at the flower. I saw all of them You know, I'm going to act before. Yeah, we have to be really careful. Nick? I think it's Philippians 3, 12 and 14. Not that I've already attained, but that I press on towards the goal. Yeah. We're always pressing on. Or they had on my heart to walk back. Yeah. We're always pressing towards our relationship with Him. Yeah. And we'll never see it until heaven. Yeah. Absolutely. Jerome? Uh, I know there is this follow-up on Tom's question. What was your question? And then what you said. When I saw my mom pass away, I saw just a glimpse of someone finally giving up all idols. Because, uh, when, we, when we die, we basically are saying, God, I can get it. Well, he doesn't give us a choice. We give everything. We leave everything here that is of a potential idol to go to be with the one. It's interesting. It's good. Let, let's press on a little bit. 
This, this is a great interaction. I, I appreciate your guys' thoughts. This is good. Let's talk about some Old Testament failures to grasp God's heart for the family and home. Don't go to Exodus 4. I'm just going to tell you about it. This is Moses. Moses, you remember, was... Um, he met God in the burning bush, and God said, go to Egypt. And he said, ah, I've never been an eloquent man. You don't want me to do this. I'm not the guy for the job. I'll give you Aaron. I'm still not the guy for the job. You don't want me to do this. Go. I'll put my words in your It's going to be fine. They take off to head to the uh, Egypt to go deliver, and God meets him on the way. It's just this little story. And it's like there's not a whole lot of detail given, but God meets him on the way to destroy him. Do you remember why? He hadn't circumcised his son. And you go, dude, that's, that's kind of harsh, God. Oh, wait a minute. The covenant of circumcision had already been given in Abraham. Not in Mosaic Law, because that hadn't come yet, but in Abraham. And he is going to the children of Abraham. And he's going to say, the God of Abraham has spoken to me, and you all need to follow me out. I don't apply the covenant of Abraham to my own family, but you follow me. God says, uh, not that kind of guy. And Zipporah, his wife, saved him. Okay, that's a little story you read and you go, why is that in the Bible? And you just turn the page and keep reading. Oh, my goodness. It's huge. Let's go to, um, oh, do we want to do Eli? We better do Eli. Yeah, let's go to 1 Samuel 2, okay? 1 Samuel 2, verse 12. Well, I tell you, 1 Samuel is huge on the family and men who have ministry for God among Israel and what they did with their family. You can learn so much. I mean, starting with Hannah and how she viewed her family. I mean, you talk about a woman who was not... I mean, the thing that was the most disgraceful for a woman in Israel is to not have a child. Because they all... You know why? Because they knew God was promising somebody. They knew that a seed was coming. And a, the, every woman wanted to be the one who was going to give birth to the seed. And so this is why they love genealogies. They... They wrote down everybody's name who was from whomever and then came and, and, and here she was. Man, she could have been like most of the women and been a, an idolater for a child. She gets a child and what does she do? Give him back to God. How, that's, the, that's the initial step way 1 Samuel starts off. And that little boy, Samuel, gets put into a very interesting family. Look at verse 12. The sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Eli was the priest at that time at Shiloh where the tent was. And the customs of the priests and with the people, his sons didn't know those customs. When any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. He'd thrust it into the open pan and with a kettle and the cauldron of the pot. And all that the fork would brought up, the priest would take for himself. They did this in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, before they burned the fat, this was the most important thing to do in the sacrifice, separate the fat, burn it before God. It was a fragrant aroma. Before they did that, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give the priest meat for roasting, as he won't take boiled meat from you, only raw meat. 
If the man said to him, no, no, they must surely burn the fat first and then take as much as you desire, then he would say, no, but you shall give it to me now, and if not, I'll take it by force. And thus the sin of the young men, the, the sons of Eli, was very great before the Lord, for the men despised the offering of the Lord. And, and in contrast, all of the time, whenever Samuel here writes about this, there's uh, this bad story about the sons of Eli, and then right afterwards is, is the good story of, of Samuel. He's put in contrast. Go to verse 22. We're, we're now back to the bad. Now Eli was very old, and he heard all that he heard. He heard. Stop for a minute. He heard. He heard all. He heard this. Did he see it personally? Where was he? This had to be told to him that this was going on? He heard all that his sons were doing to all of Israel, how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, "Why, Boys, why do you do such things? The evil things that I hear from all these people. No, my sons, for the report is not good while I hear the Lord's people. The emphasis is on, I, I, I'm, I'm hearing this from other people. I don't know it firsthand. I'm your father. I haven't seen this firsthand. I don't know what you're doing firsthand, but I hear this from all of the people. And does he say the right thing? This is not good. What is all this evil? Yes, that's the right thing. But the, the problem is, it, well, we've got to keep going. Let's see what he says. Here's what the problem is. Um, down verse 29. Then God you know, sends to him a man of God to tell him what's going to happen. Uh, verse 29. Why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling, and honor your sons above me? Here's the problem. Eli honors his sons above God. By making yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering of my people Israel. Therefore the Lord of God Israel says, I did indeed say that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I'll honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. That's, wow, that's, that's extreme. God ended this family to work out of another man's household in the line of the priesthood. Um, later, you can read in 1 Samuel 7, the next bullet point there. We, we won't turn there right now, but Samuel... Lived and he saw all of this all of the time. He was in this household. He is put in contrast as the righteous example against the, the unrighteous example of all these men. He then grows. Uh, we got to look at. It. Go to First Samuel seven. I'll just show you. Uh, uh, it, it goes quick. Verse fifteen. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He used to go annually on circuit to Bethel and Gilgal and Mitzpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. And then his return was to Ramah, for his house was there, and there he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. Interesting thing for a priest to do who has Shiloh or the tent, and yet he built an altar. Verse uh, Chapter 8, And it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Oh, so he has a family. And his boys have grown up. Okay, Based on everything that he saw in Eli's household, let's take a look and see the impact in Samuel's household. Now the name of the firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. And they were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain, and they took bribes, and they perverted justice. What? How could that be? 
listen, I think it's safe to say that the sinful tendency of our fallen nature is to just do this. If you do nothing, it doesn't matter what you saw, what you experienced, and what you personally do, you won't pass it on. It's swimming upstream, guys. You have to constantly work. Otherwise, the next generation is not going to get it. The next generation is just not going to get it. If you think, well, I'm Christian, my dad was Christian, I'm Christian, my kids are... It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. You have to fight against stream and against the flow of sin. Now watch this. The elders of Israel gathered, verse 4, together, and they came to Samuel at Ramah. They said, Behold, you're old, and your sons don't walk like you do. Give us a king. And we all know that this request came in a sinful manner. God makes that very clear in this chapter. But what, did, what were they tying their sinful request for a king to? Look at the verse. Verse 5. You're too old now, and what? Your sons. Your household is unbearable. We want a king. Now, the focus of this chapter is... For, the intent of this chapter is for God to draw out that Israel was sinful in this request of a king. But you can't miss the fact here that Samuel, his, the way that his household was, was a contributing factor to their sinful request. The nation chafed under Samuel's sons. An ungodly request for a king was inseparably tied to the frustration that they all felt under the ungodly leadership of Samuel's sons. And you can begin to see the domino effect of you shepherd your heart and you step into your home and then that makes an impact on ministry to other people. You can see that these are all inseparably linked in God's mind and in his word. Right? Turn over on the back. I'll just reference these to you. You have the example of David. Remember, we're talking about negative examples. 2 Samuel 7 is an amazing positive example where David, God's, David says, you know, here I live in a paneled house and, and the Lord dwells in a tent. This isn't right. I want to build a house for God. I want to make a household for God. And God says, I never laid that on anybody's mind or heart. I've, I've dwelled in tents since the days that Israel came out of Egypt. Um, David, it's not going to be you. I appreciate it. It's not going to be you. Um, your job for me is to shed a lot of blood of people who deserve and have been waiting for my judgment. But your son will, and I'll tell you what though, David, I'll, you want a household for me? I'm going to make you an amazing household. David is just humbled by this. You have the Davidic covenant made with God and David. You get a few chapters later, chapter 11, David isn't doing what he's supposed to do. He's supposed to be out at war. He's up on his roof. He sees Bathsheba. You know the story. In chapter 11, David undoes his house. God actually says to him, from within your own house, I am going to split your household. So here was my covenant I made with you. There will always be a son that will sit on your throne. And that is true. God did not undo that, but he took David's house and he did what with it? He fractured it. And when Absalom chased him and he had to leave... He left a, some of his own concubines behind to keep house. And Absalom, in the presence of all of Israel, went into that house and slept with his concubines. Now, there's a whole host of things that are wrong with concubines and all that in the household. But it came true. His household was forever against him. And his household fractured the whole nation. 
ten tribes, all of them up go north, Judah left down below. Sad, very sad. Then you have the example of Solomon in 1 Kings 11. Um, let's take a look at chapter 11 of 1 Kings. And then how about this? We'll take a quick break. 1 Kings 11. Boy, and you know what? These need to be good examples for us guys of, of men in the Bible, believers in the Bible who started well but didn't finish well. Starting well is no guarantee that you will finish well. Okay? That's sobering, isn't it? Verse 1, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, You shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they shall surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. 700 wives, princesses, 300 concubines, his wives turned his heart away. When he was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. And his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David... What's, what's God trying to make a point with here? Did you get it? Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Moloch, even. What did they do with their sons with Moloch? They killed their kids. They, 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 they ruined their household. He built his house contrary to God's will, and it impacted his heart. Listen, just even at this point, up for these first three categories, you cannot conclude from Scripture that the household is not important. You, you can't conclude that. It is important. God puts a big emphasis on it. In fact, it's probably the decisive place for man. So many things are going to be determined there, right in your own household, about your life. Okay? Now, on that happy note, let's take a break, and we'll come back, and we'll jump into the rest. Let's just take a five-minute break, a quick five-minute, get something to drink, use the restroom, come back, and we'll uh, finish up quick, okay? Let's talk about your homework. Do Saturday, November 20th. That's our next time together. This is the one where you're going to involve your family or roommates or acquaintances that you invite into your household if you're by yourself. Question one, what impact, again, this kind of builds off of your last homework. Um, what impact do you think your heart has made on your home lately? Is it a positive impact? Is it a negative one? A blend? In what ways? Are you going to talk about that? Um, Question two, now ask someone in your home. Um, ask your wife. If you're married, guys, um, I want to have you, I want you to ask your wife, okay? Um, if you want to ask your children also, if they're old enough to be able to give you feedback, I want you to do that too. If you want to, you can do that, but your bare minimum requirement is you have to ask your wife, okay? You can't ask your children, but not your wife. You have to ask your wife, okay? And if you want to also ask children, do it, Okay? Um, but ask someone in your home what they think of your overall influence on the spiritual climate in your home lately. Okay? Um, buy your wife a big bouquet of flowers. 
get her a box of chocolates and sit down in front of her and say, I'd like for you to tell me what you think about me. <laughs> Can you what? Yeah. If you want your wife just to write it down and send it in, she can do that. <laughs> um, if, if, you, if you are not married, um, ask a roommate. We'll be honest with you. If you live by yourself, ask somebody who's in your household frequently. The person who's in visiting your household the most, ask them. If it's a parent, if it's a friend, coworker, whatever, ask them. When you come into my house and you hang out here with me, what do you what do you get? What comes up? Number three, ask someone in your home to comment on the level of spiritual protection you provide those in the home. I want you to be thinking kind of like, uh, you know, first, uh, 2 Timothy 3, Titus 1 type thing. There are people who are burdened under sins in your family. There are, um, there's false teaching. There's all kinds of ideas. And look, the only way it could get into a household back then, there's just minor ways, a few ways in which it could come in. You now have computers, TVs, books, movies, music, just all these different ways. It can all come in to your children, to your wife, and you need to be a, a man who is there present, standing over your family, protecting. Question four, ask someone in your home to offer suggestions of how you can improve on your spiritual influence in the home for good. That's a great step in humility. How can I improve? And if they come up with something that you didn't see coming, mention that. You know, most likely they're going to see something that you, maybe you haven't even thought of. But go ahead and, and ask them and, and make note of that. And um, question five, have you found yourself playing leapfrog over your household? Why? Why do you think you've done that? What has been going on in your own thinking that you rationalized it was a good idea for you to do that? Okay. Um, for those of you who are younger and are in a household, you should be asking your parents these questions. Ask your parents. Okay. Um, ask them, what do you think, what kind of contribution am I making to the family? If you're in this room and you're a young man and you're wanting to follow Christ, it's time for you to step up and start to contribute spiritually to your household. Okay, guys? You need to do that. And it's good to ask your parents, um, what kind of an impact am I making? What do you think? Mom, do you think I'm trying to play leapfrog over this household? Am I trying to just get out of the house whenever I can? What tangible changes need to take place on a daily basis? I want you to think about daily. Are there, there are probably some things that you'll be able to think tangibly about on a daily basis. Well, daily, right away, I can think of, I need to do this. Write that down. Make note of that. There might be some things on a monthly basis that you, or a weekly basis you can do. There's some things you can do with the family on a weekly basis that you can't do on a daily basis. But you could do it once a week. There may be some things that you want to do once a month with your family that can make a big impact on your family that you can't do on one day or on one week, but you could do it once a month um, or something like that. What needs to begin? And guys, on all of this, just like with anything else that you do, you're going to feel very overwhelmed. You're going to feel, um, you're going to probably feel condemned by what you know is going on or maybe what is not going on. And guys, you, you have to keep the gospel in front of you you have to keep the gospel underneath you. You have to keep the gospel behind you and in front of you. And you need to rest in what Christ did. Every sin, if you are in Christ, is paid for. 
and you have no guilt in his sight, positionally speaking. And now from that, and the, and, and the gospel provides a whole new identity for you to actually love these things, to, to want to, to take care of your household. So now inform your mind, renew your mind with the truth, the gospel truth, that when he saved me and he made me into a new creature in Christ, one of the things that, one of the desires that came were, was a desire to love my wife a desire to love my children, a desire to want to have a household where the gospel is central if I'm living with roommates or not. That's a part of my new identity in Christ. And in the gospel, I have equipping to do this, divine power from God to be the man that I must be. I'm not being him yet. I'm just waking up maybe, but there is power for me. Renew your mind in the gospel in this way. Ask for help. Come back to the gospel over and over uh, keep asking questions of your family and recognize that nobody does this overnight. Nobody. This is a lifelong process that you're going to be living this out. And what we're trying to do is say, if you haven't been on the course, on the path, what this is is saying, let's get on the path. Getting there is half the battle, if not more. Okay? Some guys never get onto it and recognize this. Get onto the path, and now we can begin to walk. You can begin to walk in those good works that God prepared before the foundation of the world for you. Okay? Ephesians 2.10. Right? So no beating yourself up into oblivion. Okay? Um, if you find yourself overwhelmed by guilt, you go to the gospel. If you need help, you've got lots of guys in here who would love to come alongside you and lift you up and bear your burden with you. Okay? Tom, as an elder, and what you've seen, how God has used this in the past, how guys have gone through the fire, and you've seen anybody come out of it? Anything you want to say? Scott, I think uh, your comment about the uh, getting on the path is, uh, is huge. And I would only just encourage that... Uh, it might come back off of that. Uh, but praise God, we do confess our sin. He's faithful. He's just, he forgives, and he cleanses, and gives yourself back on the path. And you know, a quick testimony about me. I had a six-year-old or four-year-old when I became a Christian. And sanctification is a, it was a very, very, very slow process. So by the time I figured out that there was even a path, I had about a 13-year-old, 14-year-old daughter. Uh, so there is hope for you guys. It is the gospel, but it's getting yourself on the path. And I can only, in my own life, have I loved the path again? Absolutely. And you just come back to the path. That's good. Scott, any thoughts on your mind? Same thing. Uh, you have to... When we fail, when we fail, we will. We have to recite the gospel to ourselves because, because we feel as if we are a permanent failure. The gospel is what tells us that we are, we are a child of Christ. He died for us. We must use that every day because our enemy wants us to think as if we are defeated. Wants us to think as if we are useless. Wants us to think as if this does not have any impact on our lives. And so on those days when we do fall and we do not do our best, we must run straight to the gospel and recite what God has declared to us.
through about. You know, one, one more thought. Uh, instead of just plopping yourself out on this course, if you, if you were sitting here today and you were convicted and convinced that you need to do something different, uh, I would strongly encourage you to go to, if it's your just a spouse, if it's children, and the age is appropriate, uh, you might need to seek their forgiveness for failing to be this man in the past. Uh, because there's, you know the saying about avoiding the pink elephant in the room? Uh, there's this elephant in the room. And, and for some of us, we may need to confess the sin to those that live under the roof. Will you please forgive me for how I have black shepherded in this house? Will you please forgive me for, I have, for how I have not brought you to the God in a way that's pleasing to the Lord? And uh, I, I, I think viewing my own life of becoming convinced that I needed to do something different, uh, I didn't first try it with seeking forgiveness for how I belonged. I just kind of thought I'd get on the path and everybody was following and they're thinking, who moved in? So, <laughs> I, I encourage you to, to see, you see this, and if you're, you're sitting there and you're convinced and you're convicted that you're, you're fathering, you're husbanding, you're shepherding has been sinful, confess it to him, confess it to the Lord. And, and the assignment then can become for you, if you do that first, in general, state the general principle. I haven't shepherded you know, my heart well and into this home well. Will you please forgive me for that? Now, I'd like to try to get to some specifics. I have some questions for you. Um, that's going to help your wife see, your, your kids see, your roommates see, your parents see. I am that you're humbled by this and the way that they will speak to a humbled man or growing will be tenderly and gentle. Um, uh How would the how would sitting down across the table from an unbeliever asking me these questions with those people in your house right now? Great question. How would they work? It's a great question. You're not going to be able to work with the same set of accepted and held and believed um, you know convictions they may not even care that you haven't been what you wanted to be so you're going to need to speak about it in a way of you know if you're a roommate with unbelievers or you've got family that's unbelievers you can say you know I'm, I'm I think God would, would have had me be more connected to your life be more concerned about you, love you more, serve you more, and I haven't done that well. Um, will you forgive me for that? And they may look at you like you're nuts. But they're going to see, they're going to get an aroma of the gospel and the word of God from you in that, and that's what they need to see. So you can approach it that way with them, maybe. Um, Scott, I can put a Bible verse with what you just said. Great. And it'll be Romans 2 4. In going to the non-believer, going to anybody, uh, it's that kindness that leads to repentance. Mm-hmm. And, and I think to go humbly, even though they don't have a grid, uh, 
Let's pray and uh, we'll dismiss you guys. If you can um, just look with your blue sheet of homework, if you can just write your name on the top in, in a moment here. And if you want to just uh, put them on, I don't care, the counter up there, or that's fine, or leave them on the desk where you're at. <coughs> make sure you've got your name on them, okay? Um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we again thank you for the opportunity to be together and think about these things from your word. Lord, I'm struck by the example um, of your son. That you um, were willing to have him come to earth. You could have had him become flesh somehow that would have come apart from a family and apart from a household. But you wanted your son to come into a household. Because everything that you had promised beforehand about what you felt and thought and expected for households, he needed to be in and do. And so that he could show those who would believe in him how to conduct their households as he and his gospel would advance to the ends of the earth. Thank you, God, for running yourself, second member of the Godhead, right through the household for us. And thank you for your word that is speaks so clearly. Oftentimes, Lord, we find that it our, our struggle is not that it's not clear. Struggles that's hard to swallow and accept and desire and and to do. And I pray for myself and for my friends here, Lord, that you would work in us in such a way with your power that you would revive our desires in Christ for our households if, if we need to. And Father, for where we are redirecting our course and setting our navigation points according to the gospel and your word. I pray, Lord, that you would provide strength. I pray that you would provide um, comfort in the gospel and forgiveness of sin. Help us to walk humbly under our wives, under our parents, before our children. Help us to... I pray for them, Lord, that they will have a godly response to our questions as we ask them over the next um, coming days. And I pray, Lord, that you would even, in the days past and in the days to come, before we ask, I pray that you will have impressed upon them in their minds something about us that when we ask them, they'll be able to speak specifically about what they have seen or experienced. Not so that it um, humiliates us, but so that it can be instructive for us and so that we can grow, so that we can change, so that you can use that to build us up. Father, I pray that you will help each one of us here as we um, serve and labor side by side one another in the in this body. Help us where we see one of us being um, burdened and guilted down low to the ground. Lord, help us to come and, and help buoy one another up with the gospel, with love and with care. Lord, give us, um, help us to get rid of our pride so that we would ask for help if we need it. And um, help us to be an encouragement to one another. Lord, we are counting on you fulfilling your promises in us. Our promises that we make to you are not very impressive to us. But your promises to us in the gospel are. And Lord, we pray for strength that whatever we do resolve to do according to your word, Lord, that you would sustain us to do it. 
And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Guys, thank you so much for coming. Great to have you here. Uh, Just put your name on your homework and leave it here with us, okay?